from Silicon Valley, the heart of startup land. It's Getting to Alpha, the show about creating innovative, compelling experiences that people love. And now, here's your host, game designer, entrepreneur, and startup coach, Amy Jo Kim. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Today, you'll get to peek inside the mind of Eric Zimmerman, a multifaceted, multi-talented game designer, educator, and artist who never stops innovating. Eric teaches at the NYU Game School and creates artistic collaborations on the side. He's a true industry visionary, always ahead of his time, and his focus on what's important in game design might surprise you. I have been called a playtesting fundamentalist because I really believe that playtesting as early as you can is the key to to game design. Join me and find out what Eric thinks about teaching, playing, and creating compelling and meaningful experiences. Welcome, Eric, to the Getting to Alpha podcast. Hello. We're really thrilled that you're here with us. So, Eric, for those who don't know you, give us a whirlwind tour of your background. How did you get started, and how did you decide what to pursue along the way? Well, I've been working as a game designer for the last 20 years or a little bit more than that. Um, I started mostly in the online gaming world. So this was before the indie games era. People didn't use that term very much, but we were making small-scale independent games for browsers. I had a studio called Game Lab that I co-founded with my partner, Peter Lee, that we founded in 2000, and we made a variety of games for browsers. Some of them were for big websites like lego.com. We made a lot of the classic Lego games like Junkbot. Other times we helped invent what are now called casual games, although I don't love that word casual, but we made games like Diner Dash, and uh, that helped spread the idea that games were something that not just hardcore gamers could play, not just sort of young white dudes, but all kinds of people could play games. Uh, during my time at Game Lab, we spun off a sister nonprofit company called the Institute of Play. That nonprofit is still around and thriving, and it's created public schools in New York City and Chicago where the entire curriculum is based on games and play as the model for learning. So while my company Game Lab was really a commercial enterprise, the Institute of Play is a nonprofit that looks at games and learning. During that whole time, I was a game developer. I also taught at places like New York University, MIT, School of Visual Arts, Parsons School of Design. Um, But in the last several years, I've actually switched over and become a full-time academic. I don't know if that means switching over to the dark side or the light side, just the (laughs) the other side. Uh, So now I'm a full-time academic. I'm a professor at the NYU Game Center here in New York City. Um, And we have an amazing MFA, Master of Fine Art, and a BFA program as well that's focused on game design and game development, game scholarship. Uh, if any of your listeners are passing through New York City, definitely check out our events. We have lots of speakers and, and events and workshops going on. As an academic, my research is just my creative stuff that I like to do. So I am still making video games, tabletop games. And most recently, I've been collaborating with architect Natalie Pozzi. She and I have been doing large-scale museum installations for museums, galleries, festivals, 
that are mostly non-digital. They're just large kind of sculptural games that you play with your body and with other people in the space. So I guess I've had a, I've had a kind of long and, and varied career. I, my, what motivates me, I think, is just inventing new forms of play. And in that sense, I'm really, I'm, I'm easy. I, I sleep around a lot. I'll, I'll, I'll make a tabletop game. I'll make an indie video game. I've made massively multiplayer online games. I've made retail box package good games back in the day. Um, and uh, now I'm just doing whatever kinds of games interest me. And what kind of games do interest you, Eric? Well, I am really interested in, uh, you know, I guess it varies from project to project. And a lot of it varies from um, who I'm working with as well. When I'm working with uh, Natalie Pozzi, the architect, I'm learning so much about space and light and form and how people engage through each other, through their bodies in, an, in a real live actual social space. Um, I just have a new game out called The Metagame this year that is a card game I did with local number 12, Colleen Macklin and John Sharp. And that game is is kind of mixing and remixing culture as the field of play. So it's a game where you share your opinions about culture. Um, and and uh, that's really different too. So it just just completely depends on the, the game I'm making and, and what interests me. You're a true innovator. Oh, thanks. So you've been a hands-on maker for a long time, and you've also been a teacher. What prompted you to start writing and speaking about game design along the way? What were the issues that first came up that you really felt compared to share your perspective on a wider stage? Well, Amy, I, I started designing games in the 90s, the mid early to mid 90s, which I think is, you know, uh, the same kind of generation of as when you started working in the industry. And at that time, I would actually been trained as a as an artist, as a painter. And, you know, I thought, oh, well, I'm entering in this new field of uh, of games. And of course, there's going to be these whole kind of theoretical vocabularies to learn and schools of thought about what is a game and what isn't and and what's the right way to design a game and what what isn't. And today, of course, all that stuff does exist. You know, we have lots of uh, intense online debates about what game criticism should look like and what are the right ways that game designers should think about what they do. But but 20 plus years ago, none of that existed. Even though games are an ancient form of human expression and we can go back tens of thousands of years to the earliest board games and, and sports from ancient Egypt and, and Africa and in Asia, on the other hand, game design as a field has really only come into being in the last decade or two with the explosion of digital games. So what led me to teaching, to answer your question, I am actually getting there, believe it or not. Um, what led me to teaching was teaching became a way for me to really understand what was I doing. If game design was a field like architecture, graphic design, other design fields, what are the concepts that we would use for understanding what a game was, how it functioned, and what it meant to design meaningful play for players? And I would say I still teach because it makes me a better designer. So teaching for me and speaking and writing, it's all part of my practice as a game designer. So, for example, Rules of Play, the textbook that I wrote with Katie Salen, that was also a part of... Uh, just trying to understand, hey, if there isn't really a textbook for game design that exists, but maybe if we wrote one, 
it would help us understand game design better. And the teaching that I did starting with Frank Lance at NYU in the 90s uh, and through today, I do because it's my way of sharpening my sword. It helps me stay, stay sharp and fresh as a, as a game designer. That's fantastic. And for those listening, you will find all the URLs and links that Eric's talking about in the episode notes. Go to gettingtoalpha.com slash podcast. So Eric, following up on what you said, you've, you're one of those amazing people. I have to just tell you up front how much I admire you. Uh-oh. You and Tracy Fullerton at USC and Jesse Shell at CMU, you all are teaching and helping to run the top game design programs in the country. And you're also creating on the side. And that's just a lot of giving to the world and a lot of personal creative energy. So you've been in the position of bringing many, many new ideas to life. As you said, you're always looking to innovate with new forms of play. Mm -hmm. So as you've done that with, you know, box products, with uh, teams that are building online games, with your students that you're helping build their own games, what are some of the most common mistakes that you see first-time creators make in the early stages of designing and testing their ideas? Well, that's a big question, but I'll, I'll try and answer it. Um, I have been called a playtesting fundamentalist because I really believe that playtesting as early as you can is the key to, to game design. You know, do we have some caveats and maybe we can talk about that? Um, but in general, I think the biggest mistake that people don't do is they, they don't rely on an iterative process where they do rapid prototyping and they base their design decisions on their experience of the prototype. There's often an idea when people are entering into an industry for the first time, whether it's they want to make films or write a book or make a video game, that somehow the idea of the game, the concept behind the game is the main thing. Once you have that concept, well, then, you know, just executing the game is the matter of, you know, crossing your T's and dotting your I's. But really, it couldn't be further from the truth. I really think that any idea is a valid starting point. The actual design happens once you start building the game and playtesting it, seeing what the prototype is trying to tell you about what's working and what's not working in the game. The only time when an idea in and of itself might be you know, sufficient is if you're doing a complete copy of an existing game because then you don't have any uncertainty about the way things are going to play out. But the more innovative, the more you want to mix and match genres, the more you want to try out new ways of telling stories or new forms of player interaction or new kinds of social relationships among your players or communities that you want to form, the more you want to innovate, the more essential it is to playtest and prototype because you just don't know in advance what's going to work and what's not going to work. In fact, one of the, one of the pleasures of playtesting is seeing all of your brilliant ideas, you know, shattered on the rocks of reality. Um, but if you can learn to enjoy that painful process 
of coming to the truth about your design through playtesting, then you also can take advantage of it and learn to uh, benefit, for example, from happy accidents that can occur during playtesting or collaborate with your players uh, as they playtest your games and gain from their insight and wisdom into, into your own design process. So I just, I, yeah, I can't emphasize it enough, but I think one of the big problems at the start is that people overemphasize the idea. Then they just want to iterate on what's the best idea. Let's argue in the abstract about which, whose idea is working. If, if I have a group of students and they're arguing about whose idea is better, I say, okay, you know what? Everyone go make a prototype, come back here in 15 minutes, and, and we'll try them out. Um, I actually teach game design off the computer um, so that everything is a tabletop game or a physical game or a, or a sports uh, phys- uh, social game so that people can quickly prototype and iterate ideas. I understand it's harder to do that once you move to a, to a digital medium. And of course, we have plenty of video game making classes at NYU as well. But the fundamentals courses are all off the computer. But but I would say that that, that to me, that idea that you just want to play test early and often is very essential to my approach. Awesome. I love it. It's central to mine as well. And so I think you and I have had some parallel experiences that led us to that realization, which is it's just you get better results that way. It's really that simple. You know? Yeah. So um, building on that, Eric, can you take us through how you approach early testing and iteration on a new project, perhaps on something that's fresh on your mind or something you're planning, using that same approach. Um, let's say you're working with a group of students or you're working with a collaborator on an art project or museum project. How do you then do that early testing and iteration? And in particular, how do you filter out which ideas to pursue and which to cast aside as you're doing that? Well, I think that the challenge of the earliest playtesting, it's about the the strategy of how can I squeeze down what might in the end be a big game into a tiny prototype? So, for example, how can I take a game that's going to be played by thousands of players and make it a prototype that, that maybe a handful of players can test the core mechanic? Or how can I take a game that's meant to last for hours or, or days or weeks and, and do some kind of quick prototype where I can, you know, turn around a play test in 15 minutes or half an hour. So it's really about identifying the core of the game that you want to begin play testing and prototyping, that you have to be very tactical and strategic. There was a game that I did in the 1999 called Sissy Fight 2000. I came out, I guess, a year before 2000 uh, with Word.com. And that was an online game that was a, a browser-based social game about little girls on a playground in, uh, in a sort of a horrible social um, contest where they're trying to reduce each other's self-esteem. Um, I should also mention that it was very much a feminist intervention into, into video games, if you think that that sounds like an uncruel... That sounds like a cruel portrayal of, of, of women, or girls in this case, uh, since they're little girls on a playground. Um, in any case, I don't mean to digress, but Sissy Fight was a highly social game, three to six players in a browser chatting with each other, interacting in real time. Well, we, the first version of that game, we played with post-it notes around a table where I was the computer and 
and people were sending in their moves to me and I was quickly um, passing out the results of what everyone else did. The next, the next prototype that we had was a text-only one that we played in an IRC chat channel um, with some very skeletal logic so that we could just get the sense of people sitting at their own computers interacting in real time in this turn-based social game. Uh, after that, we, we started having very ugly-looking prototypes of the game that slowly evolved towards the, the final look and feel. But we, we, the entire development process, we always had a working version of the game that we could sit down and play and that, that helped instruct us as to how we wanted to develop the game further. So it's that, I think in the early stages, it's about really strategizing about how you're going to quickly move out of the clouds of pure abstraction and conceptualizing and into a prototype. So before you write your big design document, write a prototype spec. <laughs> write the minimum stuff that's going to get a uh, get your programmer um, building an actual playable version of the game, even if it's ugly and very, very simple. Yep. I could not agree more. And again, I've learned that through painful experience of what happens when you don't do that. Right, right. No, I think, I don't know if this is going to be a kind of podcast where you and I go point counterpoint. I think it's uh, going to be more like a, a, a happy fest of two people agreeing with each other. Well, and then the other thing I'm all about that I love to learn from you and to share with um you know, all of you out there is the hot tips and tricks, the shortcuts. So on that note, you know, along the way, since you and I vehemently agree about prototyping and about low fidelity first, keep it very quick and dirty and easy to change and low fidelity, figure out how to learn the thing you need to learn, all that stuff. How do you actually do that? <laughs> that then it comes to, well, that sounds great. That somebody, you know, let's say, Somebody says, great, okay, well, give me some concrete tips and tricks and hacks to do that. What do you offer? Do you, um, obviously you teach, so you offer that, but what are some of the things you wish you had known 10 years ago that you now teach your students and how to do that well? Um, well, I think that there's kind of specific, specific tips and tricks, but I think that the most, I think that the most important Thing to get playtesting right is an attitude. It's an attitude towards the idea of playtesting. And what I mean is that I feel that design makes us better people because, for example, to design something, you have to put yourself in the shoes, in the place of another person and think about how is someone who's never seen this game before going to learn how to use the controls and interface? How are they going to adjust to the difficulty curve that I'm designing, etc.? So design is an in intrinsically humanizing discipline in, on many levels, and I think in, in playtesting as well. I feel that when you playtest, what you're doing is giving yourself an opportunity to expand your ego and your, self of sen uh, your, your sense of self beyond just yourself, that you can expand your sense of authorship to include your playtesters. And that, for example, uh, this whole idea of valuing the brilliant genius idea over everything, 
I think it's more important to value the process by which you're making something. And there's a lot of ego in this idea of I have a brilliant idea and there's a creative director on a team and the team is just there to to implement the, the you know the genius visionaries um, idea. And I, I think that's the opposite way that's worked for me in the past of, of how games are developed. That games are a team effort, that anybody can contribute ideas, but even more significantly, that a game is about a collaboration between you and your audience that you find and use as you begin playtesting your game and moving forward. For example, you know, collaborating with your audience and, and taking their ideas from your playtests, even as you're realizing that, you know, your great ideas are not working, but what could work and, and listening to them. So I, I think that a lot of it is about having an attitude towards playtesting. Um, and for me, it's, you know, like I said, to me, it's something which, which makes us better people. Um, I think that there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of, um, a lot for me about a playtest is in addition to just how do you get, uh, strategizing given your game. And I don't think there's any silver bullet. I think it's part of the design challenge. What is the, what is the core interactive risk or innovation that our game is making? What is that core interesting thing that we've never seen before in a game or interesting mix of existing mechanics? Let's just strip them down to their essence and just put it in a game. If it's multiplayer, can we do it with single player? If it's, you know, if it's, uh, if it's supposed to be in a 3D world, can we do it in a 2D world? So just always simplifying for that first prototype. Then, once you actually have that, that prototype, I feel that you want to kind of spiral out to your audience. I, actually, Amy, I don't know if you and I agree with this, but I, I always say you always start with you and your team as the initial testers, then it might be people in your office that you're pulling over to play. And as you move forward in the development of the game, you want to move towards the kind of people that are your actual audience, especially if they're very different than you. So if you're designing for kids, you want to get kids in playing your game that are of, you know, of the appropriate age as, as soon as possible. Um, and you learn from that process of kind of spiraling out words towards your, towards your core audience. Later in the process, you probably want to be much more rigorous about finding people that really represent uh, the audience that, you're do, that, that, you're, um, that your uh, game is does, intended to uh, be played. I would also say that, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff for me, that moment when people are playing your game, preparing for that moment for the playtest is very, very important as well. Um, you always want to know going in, what is the question that you're hoping your playtest will answer? So, so you always need to be open to discover stuff you never expected to have a playtest. You also really want to be focused and say, why, why are we making this prototype? What is the question that we're hoping that this prototype begins to address? Not that it'll answer it fully, but you should, you should know about that. I also think it's important to um, always have a generous attitude towards your playtesters. Your playtesters are people that are donating their time, unless you're paying them. That's a different situation. But for, for a lot of indies, it's going to be people that are donating their time um, to play basically what's a broken game. So uh, that, to me, is an incredibly generous um, 
action that someone is doing to help you out and help you develop your game. And I always think that you need to be as, as generous as you can to them, to, to thank them for doing it, to, to let them know that if, if they're having trouble, it's not their fault. It's your fault as a designer. Um, and, uh, I think as they're, playing your game, you want to observe. You don't want to interfere. I think maybe the number one thing that I always see my students do is if someone is having trouble, it's very hard not to rush in and help them out. But it's so important to let your playtesters struggle to learn how to play your game and to, to, to overcome the challenges. If things totally break down, of course, go in there and help them out or change things. But for me, this is the meditation under the waterfall moment of playtesting, is to watch your playtesters having a huge amount of trouble with your game and just observe and not, not interfere. Because as soon as you start telling them what to do, suddenly the playtest isn't about them anymore. It's about you. And the whole reason why you're playtesting the game is so that you get someone else's point of view. So you, you, you always want to keep yourself apart from the, the process. If they ask you a question and you're standing there, um, I always say answer a question with a question. So if they say, well, what does the blue button do? Ask them, well, um, what do you think it does? Or what do you think it should do? So always try and get your playtesters to themselves own their own experience rather than you trying to, trying to tell them what to do. And it's much harder than you think. Um, we all have an instinct to want to rush in and help people because we feel horrible when our playtesters are having trouble with our, with our interface or, or learning the keys or solving a particular problem. Um, so you should also take notes on everything that you can. You should prepare a notes sheet in advance. I like to write uh, by hand instead of typing on a computer in front of someone, but that's up to you and varies according to the setup that you have. Uh, for your playtesting, but I think it's really important to think about what you want to take notes on in advance and then take notes during playtesting because otherwise you're going to be at the mercy of your own selective memory and you're going to rewrite history to make things seem better than they actually were. So you really want to remember where people had trouble and where their problems were. You want to you want to take notes on what their emotional responses were at certain points in the game, how long they took during certain times. Now, of course, if you're working in software, you can build in data collection. You want to be very selective in your data collection. You don't want to collect too much data but, um, because then it becomes difficult to know what, what, what's good data and what's not good data. That's why it's important to have a very focused research question for a particular playtest because it can also help you focus on What's the data that you want to collect? But in any case, you should always um, you should always take notes on what your players are doing, so that you don't end up with you know what we call the happy face syndrome um, in some of my teaching. And what I mean is that it's easy just to remember the the fun, happy moments when your players are having a good time, and let those memories overwrite all of the pain that you're playtesters were having. So, so that's why you want to really be cognizant of that. Pay attention to your playtesters, not just what they're doing, but their whole body language. When are they leaning in towards the screen? When are they leaning back? When are they engaged? When are they not engaged? Um, sometimes that's easier for tabletop games. If it's not their turn and they're texting on their phone, well, you know that your game is failing to engage them at that particular moment, for example. Even that's though I tell... Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Finish. Uh, even, and then I would just say that even though I tell people, I tell 
I, I, I try and teach my students not to interfere during the playtest. After the playtest, of course, you want a dialogue with your players. You want to uh, talk with them about their experience. I always like to start with very specific questions. You know, tell me about how this system in the game worked. What did you think of this character, this moment? And end with more general questions. Things like, um, what was the most fun of the game? Um, what would you change about the game to make it better? And give them an opportunity to give you open-ended questions, uh, give you open-ended answers as well. So that's that's a. I mean, there's a there's a lot to say, but those are those are some of the some of the tips. That's fantastic. So, for you personally, Eric, you mm-hmm. clearly can help many different kinds of people building many different kinds of games on many different platforms. You've worked in so many different areas. For you personally. What's your superpower as a designer, as a creator? What's your sweet spot? What kind of projects really light you up? I think that my strength as a game designer is generating concepts for games. This is going to sound contradictory because I just was recommending that we devalue the idea for a game. But I think that my... My strength as a game designer is generating ideas and then moving to a prototype as quickly as possible. So usually when I'm thinking of an idea, a solution to a game design problem, I'm also thinking about, well, what's the prototype that, that could help solve that problem? Um, I'm not, as a game designer, I'm not a visual designer. I'm not a programmer. I'm more of a pure game designer in the sense that I really focus on the player's experience and the rules of the game so to speak. So I really also feel like I have to pull my weight and be able to think structurally and in terms of systems and what are the systems that we can create in order to um, pull together a prototype. So that's so interesting because one thing I've noticed as I've talked to many more game designers through um, recording this podcast is that there's so many different types of game designers and people start Mm. from a different place. Some people start with narrative. They're, they're centered in narrative and when they start to design a game or whenever they do a personal project, it will be narrative based. Some people start with systems. I'm a system designer. So I always start with systems and mm-hmm. player experience as it sounds like you do. Cause that's mm-hmm. my background and it's also my nature, but often I'll be paired on a game with a great narrative designer or a great visual designer. And then some people that approach game design might start with something else. They start with um, like a core mechanic that they just want to explore and they go from there. Have you noticed that too? Oh, I totally agree. I I definitely think that uh, game design is such a great field because it's so varied and there are so many ways to approach what we do as game designers and starting points for our creative process. There are game designers who are more like economic numbers gearheads who love making spreadsheets of their virtual economies and and balancing them that way. There are game designers that really focus on the social interaction between players and just have a great sense for how human beings interact with each other. There are other game designers, I think, that are just really smart about pop culture. And their strength is just thinking about how is what I'm going to do fit into this larger landscape of media. Then there are game designers that are just really in tune with their own sense of pleasure and they can follow it like a like a like a dowsing rod. They can follow it 
they can follow it towards the fun and they're really in tune with what's what's fun and what's not fun about a game that they're working on. So yeah, I'm more of a systems designer, um, but I think that it's it's uh, it, it's wonderful how many superpowers uh, different game designers can have. Absolutely. So Eric, what's on your horizon these days? Where what are you paying attention to? What's coming up for you? Um, in terms of my own projects, I would say the metagame is one that I am spending a lot of time on now. I mentioned it before. It's a card game that I did with John Sharp and Colleen Macklin, local number 12. And it is a tabletop card game. It's a little bit in the apples to apples, a Cards Against Humanity genre. In fact, it was one of the inspirations for Cards Against Humanity uh, several years ago. But this is a game that we've recently published, and uh, you can look for it online, the metagame. It's available on Amazon, and we just launched some expansions for it. So I'm, I'm really enjoying being a little bit in the tabletop world in addition to the video game world. Awesome. And you can also find links to the metagame and to Eric's personal site and to the NYU program in the episode notes. Thank you so much, Eric, for joining us today and sharing your wisdom and your experience and your insights about the power of playtesting. Thanks, Amy. It was a blast. Thanks for listening to Getting to Alpha with Amy Jo Kim, the shows that help you innovate faster and smarter. Be sure to check out our website, gettingtoalpha.com. That's gettingnumber2alpha.com for more great resources and podcast episodes.